0: Pod channel. I'm Stacey June and I'm Christy Mercer. Hello. G'day. How is ya? Welcome to the pod channel where all different
2: podcasts drop every day. Yeah, seriously though. <laughs> um, there is a bit of a through line to a lot of these conversations though and that is just friends just getting through life trying to make their lives better. Yeah, and I think we were asked what is the
0: thread between the types of conversations we have. And originally, Talking Thoughts You're Thinking But Not Saying was a, was our tagline and, and was essentially where our brand was built. But that has become such the norm, mm. which is quite interesting. And I mm. think the unique take that we bring is, is that we just have conversations we give a fuck about the end.
2: Mm. There
0: isn't really, you know, it, it, it has to be very... um. Very kind of connected to who we are as people and our interest levels for us to be talking about on the show. I
2: reckon there is still, I reckon a through line is having a pretty inquisitive nature. Yeah. Like when we ask questions of each other, things that we bring of ourselves, it's like, why have I been thinking about this? Or you ask a guest, how did that start for you? There is a real kind of curiosity, I guess, that ties it all in together. Some of
0: my favorite chats this year have been the ones that have Really surprised me. Apollo from the Bachelor, uh, Bachelorette, sorry, really was a great one. Lola Berry was good. Georgia Love was very, very oh, popular. Stunning, yeah. One of the most listened to listened to shows of the year. If you
2: haven't already heard that, we'll chuck the link in show notes. Go back and have a listen. The vulnerability of her sharing where where her voice breaks and she's talking about her mum dying after meeting the love of her life is intense. Um,
0: This is another interview episode that you are hearing Um, the catch up and our 411 will be up as per usual this week also but I wanted to also give a shout out to the episode we did with Dr Nikki Stamp who wrote a book um, Can You Die of a Broken Heart? who was a really really great support and integral person that I leaned on throughout my brother's um, kind of scary trauma and sickness that he had a few weeks back and I reached out to her on Instagram actually because it was a heart heart surgery um, uh, thing that he went through and she was just so divine in talking me through things and just kind of telling me how often they do this kind of operation and so um, it was interesting I had thought back to all of the things I got from that podcast. And if it is one of those ones that you flicked by because it wasn't a big no-name or whatever, go back and listen because it's fascinating. She
2: spoke a lot about the, the link between the physical and emotional and especially when it comes to your heart and how a lot of people, especially with elderly couples or you know people that have been together for a long time, one partner will pass and another will, will die, die shortly after and that can you actually die of a broken heart and physiologically the answer kind of in short was yes.
0: And also what is the effects of your emotional Capacity on your physical heart. And I found that in particular very interesting because that was why we got her on the show. And then here I am with my brother going through open heart surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, those questions that I asked on that episode were incredibly poignant for what I went through because there's still things you think in your head even when it happens in front of you, you know? Mm -hmm. Insane. But it was a really interesting chat. And we do have a like minded chat, not about heart surgery, but an author that that came into our inbox and was pitched to us um, about a book that I was like, wow, that sounds so fascinating and so intriguing and um, and another reason we, we got her on the show today. The
2: book was released a little earlier this year. It's called Serving in Silence, Australian LGBT Servicemen and Women. It was also co-written by Noah Reisman and Graham Whitlett. Shirlene um, is a historian. She's an author. She's also the board director of the Australian Marriage Equality Campaign, the president of the Pride History Group and a university lecturer, just to know with a few of the bits and pieces she does.
0: Yeah, she's writing another book at the moment about uh, marriage equality and kind of a now what, you know, what happens now. Or, and also the I think she the book is really um, heavily focused on the year that was leading mm. up to that point. Um, but she's done some incredible work and this particular story talks about the role played by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender men and women in Australia's military after the Second World War. So really big personal stories um, illustrating just how they in some ways found connection and, um, and I suppose a safety net at that time, like we're talking like the 70s, um, for who they were in a protected type of Uh, organization that is the army versus the you know the crazy amounts of homophobia of them having to hide those protected groups within the army it's a fascinating conversation
2: I think that's what was most intriguing about this chat it was I found it actually quite surprising because I think not knowing too much in depth about this this kind of topic I don't know you can kind of I don't know you could kind of think that it would be a place as a as a gay man or woman that it would be a place where you maybe incredibly discriminated against and while there was that it kind of coexisted with a crazy level of acceptance a subculture within a culture. That's right. Which yeah was really surprising. Uh,
0: this is Dr. Shirlene Robinson she goes into detail about that book and is really beautifully spoken about the stories that she told um, you know on behalf of in this particular book so we we hope you enjoy the chat. Shirlene Robertson, welcome to the Thinker Girls Pod channel.
1: How are you feeling? Yeah, good. I'm really excited to be here talking about what I think is a really interesting project. And um, thank you for having me. We well, can
2: confirm. Yeah, it is serving, <laughs> serving
1: in silence. Uh, the, the, the subtitle
0: "Australian LGBT servicemen and women." It's co-written with yourself and two other authors. How does that process come about? Like, how do you you have a drink at a bar, and, like,
1: and say, "Hey, we should write this book." Did the publisher approach you? How does it work? Uh, Well, look, I mean, I can't say that there weren't drinks at bars as the book was written. But um, (laughs) the the idea actually, uh, it came about because uh, I had been doing a different project, which was about um, lesbian and gay uh, people more broadly. And um, so it was 60 interviews with the National Library of Australia. And the very last interview I did was actually with a woman who had served... Uh, in the Women's Army in the 1960s. So that kind of made me think about this. And then at the same time, Noah Reisman, uh, one of the co-authors, had been writing about Aboriginal people in defence and had also sort of started to realise that there Mm. was a rich history of um, sort of, you know, LGBT service. And um, Graham Willett, another historian, had sort of also been around the same track as well. So the three of us got together and, um, you know, have spent probably about three to four years uh, working on it, we've done about 120 interviews. Wow. Um, gone through some a lot of archives, and uh, the book is just one of the outcomes. So we've had an exhibition and a few other things as well.
2: How do you collate something like that? Like as you said, over over the space of four years, there's been more than 100 interviews. You know, I, w- I would imagine countless amounts of notes and and um, different book references and things to kind of work through.
0: Well, as a historian, as a yeah. job, like how do you <laughs> to, approach to that? be
2: able to? Like I get anxious sometimes. When you have to edit a little article that we would do, or to edit bits out of a podcast, I find I find the process of cutting things to be able to make it a, a fully rounded story that somebody would be able to. Because obviously that process needs to happen; not everything can stay for it to be marketable and to be consumed. How is that process, especially amongst three different heads?
1: Uh, I think that's really interesting. So, there were definitely, um, I guess, uh, you know, the, the first important thing was to try and sort of tell the story of the Australian Defence Force's relationship with lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender people. So, we had to kind of look and see what their policy was. So, that's one element that had to be sort of obviously going through the book. How did they treat uh, these people? And then the other element had to be. Um, people we had to pick ultimately it came down to about 14 people who sort of I guess embody particular experiences and themes Mm, mm. over time but you know certainly uh, every one of those interviews could be published and I think would be um, really worthwhile so we'd like to archive them so that other people can listen to them but obviously that's uh, up to the uh, person who was interviewed, mm. whether they are comfortable with that. This but- would make a great podcast.
2: Oh, man. Just yeah. so you
1: know as
0: well. Like- <laughs> you got two
2: subscribers already. Um, yeah. So
0: you're the board director of the Australian Marriage Equality Campaign. You're the president of the Pride History Group. Where has the interest come from in terms of the history of uh, that community story and how have you found the interest in that story
1: changed since uh, the marriage equality law was, was, was came about? Uh, I guess well um, personally I, I do identify as a lesbian so I grew up in Queensland and Queensland um, really wasn't the most friendly place to be a gay or lesbian person or a transgender person mm-hmm. Um, particularly in the 1980s it's gone on a really remarkable journey and um, I sort of actually became the first topic that really related I guess to this sort of area was around HIV and AIDS Mm. because the Queensland experience was very different to the rest of Australia. Um, Mm. The rest of Australia... Whereabouts in Queensland did you live? uh, In Brisbane Um, so the federal government in the rest of Australia was very good it would give money to AIDS councils but in Queensland the the Jobiocca-Peterson government wouldn't do that, so it actually depended on nuns sort of basically smuggling money through to the AIDS council so you had these oh money goodness. laundering nuns that um health minister said they were the most cheerful of money launderers the sisters of mercy <laughs> so I mean you know that was a really get wonderful get the job done <laughs> you got love them yeah. um but you know that's what an unlikely element of, of this type of history so that really showed me there's a lot of work to be done and um you know as as I sort of started to do more work on this the marriage equality issue just became something that um became a bigger and bigger part of um, our social uh, discourse and debate and something that I thought maybe uh, I could play a role in doing something to mm. contribute in some way and and I didn't know that it would be quite as long as it as, as it was but um, uh, you know it, it was certainly really worthwhile and, and great to do that as well
2: have you f- have you found a change in people's um Interest levels, but potential openness. Like I feel like, you know, we often talk about it on this podcast where it's like all of a sudden you see, you know, so many different, you know, organisations or brands, you know, jumping on board like Empowerment of Women to sell things. or You know, which part of you goes, oh, that's a great thing because whatever, the message is still getting out there. It's still being spoken about. Do you feel like this is a time and a place in 2018 where this particular book would um, be more well received and more spoken about and people are more open to than ever before based on what our country's gone through in the last 12 months
1: yeah I, th- I certainly would hope so I mean it's certainly very timely that it has come out in the aftermath of of that sort of public vote and um, I guess in many ways I often think about you know what what the book really does and I guess it sort of it, it shows us that um, all across the spectrum of the you know LGBT, and intersex community as well, there were people who were contributing, even though it was really hard for them to do so, but they weren't allowed to live out their full potential and they were doing it at a time when they didn't have legal equality. And, um, you know, obviously the, the step towards marriage equality was a major legal reform. So um, hopefully people can perhaps live out their potential a little bit more as a result of that. They, it's yeah. it,
0: It's very interesting because the book takes a very positive, uh, a positive outlook on the relationship between uh the lgbt community and the defense force but a lot of people would assume that that relationship wasn't as positive as the book has has played i mean the ban on homosexuality was only lifted in 1992 so you would generally think when you pick up a book like this that it's going to be a big fat f you to the defense force from people that served but that's not
1: necessarily been what you guys have found right yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 it is sort of there's, There is a sort of narrative, I guess, of that sometimes defence is actually led, and I mean internationally as well. So when Australia lifted the ban on lesbian and gay um, service in nineteen ninety two, it led the, um, you know countries that were very comparable to. So you know the United States had don't ask, don't tell for much longer. Um, the UK was also behind us on that front as well. So in that sense, we were quite progressive. Uh, it did take longer for trans reform. But um, you know there is that element of Australia actually being quite proactive there. Um, but you know, in terms of, I guess, um, you know, is it a very positive story? I think, I think that yes, I think um where, where positive did, outlook yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and there's a really positive story but it's um, very different yeah yeah uh, just to some extent look i think that um a lot of people generally talk very positively about um serving they loved serving and uh particularly for women you know a lot of the women that we interviewed from the 60s and 70s being in the military really did open up a whole lot of careers that they just couldn't have had access to otherwise you know it would have just been marriage and motherhood which is really great for a lot of people but not for everyone so By joining the military, they were kind of able to escape those expectations. So in that sense, it was quite positive.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: them.
0: they have each other like was there a subculture that particularly we mentioned you mentioned off air obviously it's, it's a hilarious idea that we are surprised that there was such a big lesbian uh, intake of in the military mm-hmm. in Australia because if you want to sit by all the cliches you would think that's exactly where a lot of women were hanging um but it, it, it did they have each other was it it was was it so strict that that it was difficult to I guess communicate and and kind of be out in some form of subculture way or like a lot of subcultures they do seem to live and breathe quite confidently in a different space right?
1: Yeah I think that there was a quite a vibrant subculture I mean there'd certainly be people who served who perhaps might have been on different bases who may not have seen that but Mm. if you you were on the majority of bases I think that you would have been aware of it and had access to it and certainly for women I mean one of my favorite stories. I've got, I've got so many, I love all of the stories in the book but there's there's actually a, you can sort of see this the way that the subculture worked um, between a, a story about Carol and Christina who sort of served, they both signed up separately in the 1960s to go into the Women's Air Force and they actually basically met and fell in love and uh, they knew that they would uh, not, they'd be discharged or they'd be sent to different parts of the country if they were found out so they chose to resign um, from serving And they're still together 50 years later so you know they found each other did you get specifics on how
0: people did find each other in the military because if you're living and on site you're not really going off to Mm, a bar mm. having a different world and then coming back how how did they
1: kind of manage to connect well um, I guess for, for women um, sports teams were particularly important so that was um, you know there'd be, there'd be sort of intermilitary kind of sporting competitions and that seems to have been a very important avenue of but often it would be you'd find sort of one person and then that would open you up you know once they sort of trusted you then you'd sort of get more access into a world that existed sort of below the surface if you like. Um, but it is funny, though. You sort of talked about bars. And there was one story about a, a guy that we interviewed, and I didn't actually do the interview, but he talked about how he went to a gay bar um, because he was serving very close to Oxford Street. I so he sort him. of snuck out and went to this mm. gay bar. And then the next thing, he saw one of his superior yeah. officers in the bar, and wow. he immediately freaked out. And he sort of think I'm going to be busted. This is going to be terrible. But then about a minute later, he thought... Oh, well, you're here. Hey, why are you here? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and what, this is the
0: 60s or well, the 70s, right? Yeah, 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 yeah the yeah, 70s, was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's just
1: about the you're 70s. not going there with yeah, your girlfriend yeah. no, or no, your, no. your
2: wife's bestie.
1: <laughs> like, it's very different. Or you're just
2: gagging for some shaka car. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, <laughs>
1: no. So I think that, not, you know, there might have been a nod and, and nothing else was really said, but, it, you know, that that was a, quite an interesting sort of uh, story to come up. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, a lot of those kind of um, hidden codes and looks and cultures and, um, you know, that people would develop these sort of gay dars and um, you know um, be able to forge these connections and often a lot of women um, who perhaps hadn't realized that they were lesbians or bisexual Mm. before they would enter sort of came Mm. to realize their sexuality once they were serving and they were in that very it was a total you know the forces were separate so women served differently uh, until about 1984 So it it meant that they were enclosed in this live-in space with a whole lot of women, so it did open up some possibilities. Almost a safety net that maybe other people on the outside didn't have. Yes, and that's such a great point because, you know, I think sometimes people will say, well, why would they join the military when they were banned from doing so? Um, It seems very perplexing to me. But actually, if you have a look at what life was like for lesbians Mm -hmm. at this time in Mm -hmm. the wider community, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in many ways it was more isolating. Uh, There's a lot of social pressure and prejudice, so by joining the military perhaps in some ways you could meet other women you could gain skills and there would be other opportunities
2: that's so interesting i'm I'm intrigued around the relationship between yeah women that as you have just spoken about women serving in the military being an incredibly kind of um a positive thing for so many different reasons do you think that in this country anyway i know you know over the last couple of years there have been a kind of few different stories that have come out in terms of this real kind of yuckiness and, and inequality of of women and the way that they're, that they're treated. Remember there was that sex scandal that was filmed a couple of years ago. Like, and I feel like there's been, and I know that may be an ice, iso- not an isolated incident, but you know, maybe the way that things are reported in the media. And I think there's this kind of, um, I don't know, feeling in the, in the back of a lot of people's mind, just from one story, you know, how something becomes a bit ingrained in your brain. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a friend about this Recently, and and we were both um, saying because I'd got on a date with this guy, I was in the army, blah, he was talking about the positive steps that the military have taken towards supporting women, and blah, 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 and I was surprised by that. And he said a lot of people are because we kind of see that bad story or that negative experience, which sure there was, I'm sure a lot more that aren't reported. Mm. But have you found that personally a surprise or other people's response a surprise? to see such a positive experience from women serving in the military based on a few of the different bits and pieces that we hear and potentially remember quite well.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, well, you know, a really interesting story in the book is about Yvonne, who uh, actually was one of the, the first women to sort of train other women at Kapuka. So this was sort of when the, the military started to integrate men and women to serve together. Mm. And I mean, she sort of talks about how, you know, she had to do everything that the men had to do, you know, four times better, just to sort of be treated as an equal. I mean, it was really hard to be a pioneering woman in the 80s to try and sort of go in there and say women should serve alongside. And, you know, we did hear accounts of sexism, certainly homophobia um, and some really terribly sad stories. But we also heard some quite uplifting stories of, um, you know, a defense force that I think in many ways has been prepared to look, at least now, at, at some of the mistakes that have been made and to try and take positive steps towards addressing those. And a lot of that has been from people who have spoken out. I mean, I think it takes a great deal of courage to draw attention to sexism. Or to homophobia, um, but also you know the the military officials themselves, the top down approach as well. So it's sort of you've got both of those things happening. You've got people who are serving, who are drawing attention to how we could do things perhaps better, and then you've got people who are at the top levels who also recognise that when everyone uh, can have the same opportunities and you know achieve their full potential then we have a stronger defense force and that's great for everyone. Because of this public perception
0: I suppose that the army is straight line mostly white male um predominantly straight you would imagine in a stereotypical kind of picture you're painting in yourself by like this kind of guy um was a lot of the homophobia coming from other people in the army along like kind of is it co- um co what are they would be called co sarge like co so they're
1: the they're, they're people that they're serving with i guess yeah, yeah
0: so like people that they're serving with as opposed to um leaders in the army so it would happen because i almost think that people would actually sign up thinking that that behavior is accepted and that is essentially what's portrayed to us on the outside or was it coming also from higher levels
1: yeah, I think that, I mean, certainly for a great, you know, up until 1992, if somebody was uh, found out to be certainly a gay man or a lesbian, uh, there was little chance of them remaining uh, in the Australian Defence Force. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that in itself meant that, um, you know, that, that's a terrible sort of homophobia that did really, that, that is the saddest thing to the stories, I think, in the book about people who really wanted, they, they were so committed and they wanted to be in there for 20 years, but just it just it was just taken from them mm. and I think you mentioned beforehand about um, you know we talked about how all-consuming military life is that it isn't kind of like a nine-to-five job mm. it is your whole world your you know, your dental care and your um, uh, you know your pay or everything is very sort of um, I don't want to say institutionalized but I guess it's an institution you know yeah. um, and to be suddenly sort of expelled from that left a lot of people in fairly vulnerable positions where they kind of had to you know, pick up and try and forge a new life after spending so much time and energy in this particular zone. And
0: investment, because Mm. there's a different form of investment when you choose to do something like that with your life than there is from a nine-to-five job. With Mm. um, them being outed, is that something that comes from, again, colleagues essentially or people that they're working alongside?
1: Is that how people were found out? I mean, from the stories of the book? there would actually be, um, and you know, particularly... um, really throughout the 1960s and the 1970s and up until the 1980s we've got quite quite a few people who, who experience this and, and describe really quite horrifying stories of witch hunts. So there would definitely be um, Australian Defence Force directed witch hunts to target and find uh, gay and lesbian people, so wow, they would so you quite know proactive, yes, wow. you know follow people to bars or be at the back of bars waiting. They'd go through people's mail if they had you know mm. any inkling that there might be something happening there. So Carol and Christina, the couple that uh, I mentioned beforehand, who've been together for fifty years. One of their great regrets is that because of this fear of being found out in a witch hunt, which they kind of knew was coming, Mm -hmm. they actually destroyed all their courtship letters. So they don't have those now because if they'd been found, it would have just destroyed their careers at that time. Um, So, but yes, there would be occasionally, you know, perhaps somebody might be caught and then that would make people think, well, there's a whole sort of nest of lesbians that are at this particular base, (laughs) so we're going to send in um you know people to investigate and then they might catch one person and then in, in, interrogate them in a really aggressive and horrifying way so you know remember one man talking to me about how quickly that process of him being sort of found out and then discharged happened in the 1960s and he basically was out within five days
0: wow so and it could be you, how
1: long had he served for? I think that well, he signed up for a six-year stint, and I think that he might have been about three years into it. So, And, you know, he had a family tradition of service. This was around the Vietnam War era. But, you know, I think that he, he sort of has this feeling that there had been a witch hunt because the bus that he left on had a lot of other guys on it as well, and he sort of thinks that he was part of a biggest sort of sting, if you like. Mm. When you think about it, it's, just, it's such a ridiculous policy. Why was it a bad thing to have gay, lesbian or transgender people serving? Uh, Especially
2: and, that are you know, committed enough to do the kind of... I think there has to be a level of commitment to even think about joining the army and, and, and offering your services to your country. Mm. You know, like that should be supported. Not to Regardless mention, it was, of, well, for a lot of people, easy. they
0: were forced. Mm. So if people are up there, yeah. not trying to get out of it, and you know, I mean, be, you're welcome. Like basically, yeah. at those at that time, it's not like today where you're not actively. Well, no, a lot of people, right. some people
1: are actively in war, but it was a very different mm. time.
0: Do, yes. The country was at war.
1: Yes, no, certainly during um, you know the Vietnam War, we you know where a lot of people um, you know. For you know, they're pretty sound reasons, I uh, didn't want to go and fight, and that, that's fair enough. But there certainly were also people who were prepared to go and fight, and we've spoken to them. Um, and yes, you know, they, they did make a really important contribution. and You'd sort of think, why are you targeting these people who are meeting every target, doing mm, really well, mm. and, and actually being really incredibly brave? Um, the only thing is that they um, happen to love someone of the same sex, or they just want to correct their gender marker to match who they are. So mm. it was, it's uh, quite perplexing and one of the funniest quotes but also I guess kind of the saddest quotes that um, somebody said to me quite recently was really you know particularly for women um, particularly in the 1960s if you married or you got pregnant then you weren't able to serve and this woman said to me who did they think was serving I mean really after, so true after mm. a particular point so if you're true. pregnant or married and you're leaving who was left so <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, right. when it's happy
0: to turn the blind eye when yeah. it suits, yeah, when yeah. it was convenient. You know, at the end of the day, and it's like this that, you know, people are experiencing for different reasons now, but to lose your job because of something you choose to do in your personal life at the end of the day, whether it's today or 40 years ago, is still just brutal, mm. you know, and it's, that's a personal thing that I think we're still overcoming. Um, what was the most surprising thing you found from the stories that you, you had personally uh, in the book?
1: Um, look, I think uh, definitely I've been, I don't know if it's a surprising thing, but I've been, I mean, so obviously the fact that there's so many um, gay and lesbian people have served, so I can, we certainly are aware now that, you know, in every conflict Australia has participated in, just as Indigenous people have um, made a really valuable contribution that isn't often acknowledged as it should be, um, we, we also know that LGBT people have always been there and they have played a really important role, and it's kind of nice to be able to to show just how important that contribution was. Um, so that's, that's, that's a really important conclusion. But I guess, you know, in some ways the resilience of some of the people who served. So, um, you know, it, as you sort of said, it would, would have been extremely tough to have to deal with your whole life really uh, being radically changed. But a lot of the people not all of them i mean some people really s- sort of continue to struggle for a long time over what happened to them but there's others that um you know one, one, one woman julie who i mentioned beforehand she went on and won a churchill fellowship had a really successful career for about you know four decades afterwards so um incredibly successful bright woman and you look at that and you just think really that was the military's loss and they lost so many of their best people mm. it costs a lot of money to train people mm. and you're dismissing them on this ground so What they did in 1992 to allow open gay, um, gay lesbian and bisexual service, I think it really just recognised that they were getting rid of a lot of their own investment and some of their most talented people.
2: I think it's nice to think as time goes on, we all kind of evolve and we all, I don't know, can kind of correct, you know, injustice that's happened in the past. Like, as you said, the military in Australia moving forward and, you know, from that, you know, what would have been quite horrific pre 1992 to really kind of taking time to change that those attitudes. But then you also see stories of like over in the US and even, you know, this year alone with Trump signing that memorandum around, you know, banning trans people from the military and then going back and now it's only a partial ban. I mean, writing this book and, and what seems to be an overall kind of extremely positive experience, obviously not in all cases, but this positive outlook from a lot of people that are LGBTQI that have served. I mean, as someone that's done a lot of work on this for the last four to five years, is that, is that freak you out a little bit to go, oh, here we are thinking that we're moving forward and then oh, in a lot of ways we're not? yeah as as a world or he yeah yeah
1: Uh, i think definitely so i I guess yeah i I do look at the the positivity of the contribution of the people in australia and then I, i do think you know when you look at what these people give and are prepared to do uh and and you know obviously in the us they must be well aware of you know the contribution that's made particularly by trans personnel who are being targeted very heavily um you know that is really disturbing and it is a real concern uh and You know, they talk about medicine and things like that, but then you think uh, they spend more money on Viagra in the military than they do any medication required for transgender people, and by quite a staggering amount. I mean, the the arguments are ridiculous. Trans people have served with distinction. They have been decorated with great pride. Um, We have a a wonderful interview um, with Bridget Clinch, who really was a pivotal figure in bravely speaking out and challenging that, that ban on transgender service in Australia. And you just look at, you know, a decorated peacekeeper uh, like herself and and you think, uh, why on earth would you try and not have these people serving and enriching your institution? What years did she serve? So she was in the, um, the 2000s and so um, it was 18 years, I think, off the top of my head after 1992 that they sort of... So there was that lag in terms of addressing people who were attracted to people of the same sex before sort of um, addressing, I guess, the issue of gender mm-hmm. identity.
2: and Which was only 2010, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: um, you know,
0: very, quite recent history. And but quite... Look, you made a good point before, sorry to interrupt, that it is also much earlier than sometimes the community mm. deals with it. Like, and when I say deals with it, I don't mean that as in has to deal with it. I mean starts the conversation publicly, really. Yeah. I mean, when you look at this, it, what when we were talking about, it was, what, 1992 that they were saying, okay we need to put it on the books, everybody can work here. We hadn't even said everybody could get married. Nowhere near was Mm. even saying that. So it is interesting, potatoes, potatoes, isn't it? Like it's a tricky one because you're like, that took too long. Mm. Then you look in the mirror and say, my neighbour doesn't think my friend should get married. Mm. Yeah.
1: And I think that you really have picked up on a lot of the complexities. It's so so it's sort of like yeah. subways internationally we led, um, but in some ways, you know, there were terrible things happened to people um, as a result of these policies that were conducted by the militaries, like witch hunts, interrogations, um, losing your life and, and something that you trained in, but then there there is that journey I think. And you know, people for who serve in the military can now march in Mardi Gras in uniform. And so people who... We saw them. Yeah. yeah. Will last a few years. And is years, that only... Yeah. That's
2: only a recent thing?
1: Yes, it's only happened. I think it was must have been about 2013 or something so like well, that. So, yeah, wow. I've seen... Yeah, it's yeah.
0: been the last three years. Yeah. They've been there all the, those mm-hmm. years. Yeah. But back to Bridget. Sorry, I was... Yes. I did interrupt you. No,
1: no,
0: you So, she was... She served for... Did you say 18 years?
1: No, Um. She. Uh, she's in there for... And I'd have to go back and have a look at the book. But she's in there for a few years. And she went over to East Timor and... Um, you know, did really really well, but obviously realized that there was uh, an issue um, surrounding her gender that she did have to address. Um, but you know, the the military really were not well. Her, uh, the irony was that people. Because she already transitioned. She, this she was in the process of okay, t- realizing. Yeah, right. So she 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 signed up uh, before transitioning, and then sort of wanted to go through the process. Um, well continuing to do what she loved doing and was really really good at doing and that really did make her a trailblazer what a Um, journey to be thrown as a life
0: mission like as a lot you know you think oh my god my poor challenges i got fired this happened to me and then you think my goodness i want to be in the army and now i think it's right for me to transition i have to try and Mm -hmm. find a way to to be who i am yeah. doing both of those things simultaneously
1: and yeah I mean definitely I think that's really quite heroic and, and it did open up the door for a lot of other people to come through but it, it certainly I can't imagine how difficult that was no. so I think that um, uh, Bridget would say that you know she is very proud of of what she achieved and her service but um also it's really hard that it took such a toll on her that in the mm. end she was unable to continue to serve um, mm-hmm. but it did open up a door so people like kate mcgregor i think have cited mm. bridget in sort of mm. you know raising these questions and sort of saying you know why can't we serve um you know i have a lot to offer mm. and um you know i think that it's nice to kind of acknowledge these heroes that often don't get the attention that they deserve
2: You're right. They are heroes, and it's it's so it's so interesting. And I think the the point that you keep coming back to is the complexities of it all. It's not a one size fits all. It's not a all right now everyone can say great let's have a party. You know, like there's so many different like any like any issue. I think it's not. But I think it's not that simple. It's
0: not surprising to think the military works in extremes. Mm. It's you know thinking about how they conduct, how they have to conduct, how it's literally an institution it's the military, we use the word military to explain action, military action, you know, the way that people work. So I guess it makes sense, but it it, it would be a very, very difficult, uh, difficult journey for someone of that community to be in those extremes that you go from no get out we're going to witch hunt you to yay you're celebrated before yeah. everyone else it's what a bit head of a, spin
1: it's a head fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know there's I guess the really interesting thing is that the people that sort of um kind of managed to stay under the radar still 1992 and then kind of we interviewed a couple of people who had that scenario where they sort of weren't outed And then, you know, the ban was lifted and what it was like for them to kind of go through that. And now we also sort of have people who can serve openly and what it's like for them and are are they treated well by people that they serve with. And, um, and, you know, generally the answer, and Bridget's story, actually, the interesting thing I found from that was that she says that her fellow officers, that when when you serve with people in that kind of context and, you know, uh, over as peacekeeping missions, that sort of thing, She formed really good bonds with fellow servicemen and personnel and um, they were actually supportive of her transitioning. It was sort of just the, the top policy Hadn't caught up, and that's where she really ran into a lot of obstacles.
2: Well, then goes back to the complex thing. It's not a yeah. one size fits all. Just because there's a policy doesn't mean that everybody else serving yeah. would agree with that. Yeah. But
0: someone's got to thrash through it, don't they? Yeah, you know. And I often think of those poor buggers that are the people that often are very proud of what they've been able to make it easier for other people, but it doesn't change that their journey was incredibly hard. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. I was I about to say salute to them, but then I was like, that would look like I'm trying to do some military... <laughs> military, <laughs> military. No, I think no. you can give them a salute. But um. Go on, give them a salute, <laughs> No, I'm sorry, but I have started doing this to people. She, she has. has, you Did even it? said it the other yeah. way. And it, 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 so it's not a thing that I've put in theme for your interview. It's no. more just some random thing channeling through me uh, and I've yet to get to the bottom of it.
1: <laughs> you know, I guess in some ways I think... Uh, the, doing the interviews and meeting these people, perhaps for the people that it might have been hardest for were the people that, it, that, that just got so close, that were discharged closer to 1992. Yeah. Because there was that sense, if I'd just not been found out, you know, two years, three years, there's a woman in there who really, like, if she just stayed three more years, she would have been totally fine. And she wanted to stay for 20 years. She had like another 10 years in her. Um, so yeah. for her, this is very raw, although her resilience comes through as well. That's definitely a theme.
2: The book mm. is fascinating. It is called Serving in Silence, Australian LGBT Servicemen and Women. Um, Dr. Sherlene Robinson, you've written it alongside a, a couple of other authors, North Reisman and, and Graham Willett that you mentioned. Like, congrats on congrats on shining a light and, and I think making stories that haven't been as accessible accessible so that everybody else can and get also educated. And also
0: on writing complex Stories, yeah. you know. Sometimes it's be really. I was just way. talking about. I wrote an article, and I was talking about how it's very hard to sometimes get an an energy of the different complexities through your writing because you are trying to showcase the compassion behind it, but also the brutality in some moments. And so, it, it, it's it's a very very hard job. Um, so it's very well done. Can you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Well, actually, um, a book about the marriage equality campaign with Alex Greenwich. So um, uh, the publishers of uh, New South, who are wonderful, um, have signed up to uh, to publish that one. So we're hoping that that will come out um, for the anniversary of the public vote. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that kind of, um, you know, hopefully will celebrate what was a very difficult process for a lot of people and really was a, a great credit to, you know, Australia, I think, as a whole and a lot of ordinary people who really stood up and, and worked so hard to achieve that result
2: oh, i'll have to get you back on before then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. talk about that that's really mega interesting well yeah. it's
1: lovely to have you and yeah. thank you for your time okay well thank you so much it's been great chatting
0: TheThinkerGirls.com.au is where you can find all of the podcast shows, all of the different articles featuring our guests and posse members and all the content that Christy and I bring on a weekly basis. It is the place where everything
2: is kept. The TheThinkerGirls.com.au This podcast is presented by The Thinker Girls, Stacey June and Christy Mercer. This podcast is produced by me, Christy Mercer, and edited by our podcast producer, Jordan Lot.